Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's best and brightest radio station. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today we're going to be discussing the cultural policies developed by the Greater London Council between 1981 and 1986, and what they have to teach us in the present. This breaks a long-held rule as we try to avoid London centrism in a domestic art scene that revolves far too much around the capital, but Resonance is a London community station after all, and with the postponed mayoral elections rescheduled for May next year, now seems like a good time to consider the possibilities offered by a city-wide regional authority and what it might be able to do for our cultural lives. Joining me to discuss this are Hazel Tashru and Owen Hathley. Hazel Tashru is a historian of arts and cultural policy whose doctoral research revisited the archives of arts policy making at the Greater London Council during the 1980s. She has published on the activist art commissions of the GLC's London Nuclear Free Zone campaign and is working on a new publication, Revisiting the Visual Culture of the GLC. Hazel has a background in art practice and is a visiting lecturer at the University of Westminster. Owen Hathley will be familiar to many of our listeners, having featured on our programmes on the art of the October Revolution, Marky Smith and the Fall, and George Orwell, as well as our series of sessions recorded during the first lockdown. Born in Southampton in 1981, he writes regularly on architecture, culture and politics for Architectural Review, The Guardian, Jacobin, The London Review of Books and elsewhere, and he is the culture editor of Tribune. He's published 11 books, most recently Red Metropolis, Socialism and the Government of London, Out Now and Repeater, charting the development of the city's municipal power base. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, recently said on Twitter that he had no choice but to agree with Owen Hathaway after an article for The Guardian about how British cities might respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you'll find less grudging admiration for our guests today. Hazel, Owen, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to just start the show by giving a bit of an explanation of um, what the Greater London Council was and why it was introduced as a replacement for the London County Council in 1965. So, Owen, maybe you'd like to... Sure. So, I mean, really, the, the, the almost as soon as the London County Council was set up, a Greater London Council was, was a possibility because of the fact that so the London County Council was set up in 1889 and it was the first time London had had like real democratic government or at least London seen as a totality rather than as the kind of rotten borough of the city of London or the corporation of London. So from day one that kind of missed out a huge chunk of what was then built up London uh, mainly in the East End where the most polluting industries were and that was why those areas were kept out. Um, and over the next kind of 40 years, um, London expanded hugely in size and the boundaries didn't keep up with that, basically. So there was this constant question of at some point there would have to be a greater London. And from the early 30s onwards, politically, the London County Council was very much a one-party state. Um, Labour's majorities were enormous, um, as, and, and I've kind of always, in, you know, since the 30s, inner London has been almost exclusively, you know, leaving out your kind of Chelsea's and Belgravia's has been almost exclusively Labour. Um, so that kind of, you know, it was going to happen, basically. And some people at the LTC were supportive of it. Some people were opposed to it. And it was kind of widely expected that it would turn a 
kind of exclusive labor fiefdom into a marginal which is more or less what happened but there was also a kind of complexity about the way that it kind of didn't didn't do the things that the lcc did so the lcc controlled um schools um you know open spaces housing um you know sort of there's a very very long list which i won't go into whereas the glc had although it administered a larger area had somewhat fewer powers so a lot of the boroughs for instance became much more the, the builders of council housing than the lcc was um in terms of schools there was a two-tier system where inner london the lcc zone had were, it was the run by the london authority which was very much a kind of a preserve of the, of the left um Whereas other things were then planned as a as, as a totality, and the GLC, you know, controlled things like the building of the huge Thamesmead estate in in southeast London, um, and obviously, importantly for our, our purposes in this talk, the art centres on the South Bank. So, yeah, and the boundaries of Greater London as they currently exist are those of the GLC as it was set up in the mid sixties. Um, there was quite a sort of battle about what would and wouldn't go in. Um, various bits of Surrey managed to lobby to stay out. Um, surprise, surprise, like Epsom and Windsor and so forth kind of stayed out. But also Slough and Dartford, so places that are contiguous of London that tend to vote Labour like those two um, also stayed out. So it wasn't even the whole of Greater London at that point, really. But it was it was as big as, you know... Um, as anything's got and as you know the local authority now that has around nine million people living in it yeah and one thing that's interesting about the greater london council after 1965 is that it frequently in its elections i think in every election it returns the party that's in opposition so during the harold wilson government um when they're pursuing some quite interesting cultural policies with Jenny Lee as part of the government. The GLC is conservative. Um, and I know that one of the, the things the Tory GLC did in the um, late 70s was try and kind of halt the rise of, of punk. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so the GLC, it was just a sort of a, a classic bellwether that would just shift with every election, more or less. The first election, actually Labour won with a, by a landslide just before the election of Harold Wilson which was seen as a great surprise at the time. And then politically, it shifted into a geography that's now quite familiar, I think, of sort of inner London, you know, sort of zone two, roughly speaking, would, would vote Labour overwhelmingly. Zone six would vote Tory overwhelmingly, and everything in between that would fluctuate. And so every three years, it, it changed hands, basically. And it sort of probably the Tories worked out an independent policy before Labour did at the GLC, that the radical right in the Tory party that would take over um, under Margaret Thatcher um, was really kind of tested out by the GLC under Horace Cutler, um, who introduced the right to buy council housing, who, um, you know, had tried, I think that the Tory GLC had tried unsuccessfully to push through these kind of huge kind of motorway schemes, push through the demol demolition of Covent Garden, and it was just very, very, you know, he had a lot of personality. He was a good media performer and was committed to shifting his party uh, much further, you know, far away from the centre of the political spectrum. And in terms of kind of culture, you know, it was a reactionary suburban 
kind of um, government, I think very, very proudly um, under Cutler. Um, and you can see that in the various attempts it made to ban punk gigs, basically. Um, there were, you know, there, there was, uh, I think the Sax Pistols had to, had to play under various assumed names after the GLC was sort of chasing them around, more or less. So, um, and that obviously ended very, very sharply in 1981 but we'll come to that yeah well let's let's come on to that now um labor and the labor left indeed in quite a divided party uh narrowly win the GLC elections in 1981 and uh, ken livingston becomes leader with this very guarded support from the national labor party um and i think what's interesting for our discussion here is that livingston said that the new glc ruling body was what he called the post 1968 generation in politics um what does he mean by that well if you look at a lot of the people that were that that that, that were involved they had not come up through you know the the accepted kind of old labor network of trade unions, municipalities, and also in a lot of boroughs, families, like a lot of the inner London boroughs had been controlled, that had been controlled by Labour for a very, very long time, had become, you know, <laughs> levels of patronage were very, very um, familial in some ways, and it had become very Tammany Hall. Um, and that generation that came in were people that generally had joined Labour um, in the 70s, um, with the, or in the sort of late sixties, early seventies, during the kind of big strike waves against Edward Heath's government, um, during the point when the seventy-four manifesto said that it would create a you know an irreversible shift in political power in Britain towards towards working people, um, and were very much kind of, I, I think, closely connected with the kind of a kind of left resurgence that happened at the time, associated with people like Tony Benn. Um, but it was quite different, I suppose, to the one that you could see in places like Liverpool around um, the militant tendency and around the more kind of like old school, hard left councils in, in places like Sheffield. Um, I think there's a kind of a sort of London social history one can do on a lot of these people that is quite closely linked. And I don't mean this entirely as an insult to the history of gentrification. That a lot of these are people that have come, come to London from elsewhere or their parents might have been from London, but they'll have grown up somewhere else, and come in and you know moved into dilapidated inner city areas from places like Shropshire, in the case of Jeremy Corbyn, or Liverpool via Great Yarmouth, in the case of John McDonnell, um, and that they had um, you know made common cause with leftists within London, like Ken Livingston and Diane Abbott and Bernie Grant and Ted Knight. And they, they tended to be the people that lived in places like you know Islington and Camberwell and Camden, you know, sort of zone two Georgian areas that kind of gone down in the world. And that's very much a lot of the, pl the places they kind of tended to organise. And like those, like, like the kind of early gentrifiers and like people that were involved in social movements and like people that were involved in alternative culture, you know, they they, they set great store by democracy. By democracy, not just seen as kind of an X in a box, but seen as a kind of process and a sort of way of life. Um, set great store by culture, and were much more committed than the immediate predecessors to anti-imperialism and to anti-racism, and to um, you know to kind of tapping into the social movements that had um, kind of emerged out of 1968. Um, 
LGBT rights, feminism, and so forth, also very much part of this. Um, so they really kind of tried to drag all these things into the Labour Party and faced a certain degree of hostility in doing so. Yeah, and face hostility not just from the Labour Party, obviously, but from the ruling Thatcher government who'd come to power in 1979. Yeah. And Livingston, pretty much as soon as he gets in, sets up the GLC uh, as a kind of popular socialist alternative centre of power and model of government. Mm. Um, so some of the things he does fairly early on, he uses government subsidies to reduce tube and bus fares in a programme called Fares Fair. Um, he met with Jerry Adams from Sinn Féin. Um, he posted the spiralling unemployment figures up at City Hall. Um, county. Uh, up at County Hall, sorry, um, opposite Westminster. Um, so he sets up this, this style of, of, of government that is quite going to be quite thorny for the Thatcher government. Um, and they bring in people from various sort of new left movements and feminist movements, people like Linda Bellar, Sheila Robotham, uh, Sheila Robotham, sorry, um, Hilary Wainwright, Doreen Massey and others. Mm. Um, and yeah, established this sort of creative multicultural capitalism. So at points they declare support for Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress, uh, for Irish unity, for black sections and gay rights. And indeed, it's these things that become more unpopular in the right wing press than the economic policies that are developed, particularly by John McDonnell. Um, who we might come back to in a bit. Um, I want to get on to their arts policies now because I think these, these social and political attitudes informed their arts policies to quite a great degree. Um, there'd been this kind of bipartisan agreement on London arts policy up to about 1977, which was following really the Arts Council's principles. Um, the Arts Council, of course, set up in 1946 under Clement Attlee's uh, quite left-leaning Labour government on this principle of the best for most, which is a supposedly apolitical idea that had survived certain challenges from Jenny Lee, who's cultural minister in the 60s, and then Hugh Jenkins, who's part of the Howard Wilson government in the 1970s. Um, Tony Banks becomes chair of the Greater London Council's Arts and Recreation Committee. Um, he got accused of bringing party politics into this cultural programme, uh, and he was quite upfront about the fact that he wanted to use the arts as a medium for a political message. Um, Nonetheless, there's only a quarter of a page given to culture in the Labour Manifesto for the 1981 Greater London Council elections. Um, and one of the first things I do of note really is introduce these public subcommittees on community arts and ethnic arts, which are launched after consultation in September 1982. So, Hazel, I wondered if you would be able to talk a bit about what these... Um, what these subcommittees were and the kind of importance and significance of separating community arts and then ethnic arts. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, to begin with, I suppose, um, community arts had only really been uh, coming to um, Arts Council funding in the mid seventies. Um, so we're talking about, you know, five or six years before, um, before uh, the GLC started to involve itself in this. And a lot of community artwork was usually funded by uh, either a mixture of the Arts Council, but also then bits from uh, local governments and from charitable organisations, very piecemeal. 
um, there had been um, associations set up by community artists to try to um, lobby for money and for be being taken seriously, um, obviously. Um, but we can say that it wasn't an entirely professionalised um, kind of practice at that point. Um, and I suppose when the GLC, um, the GLC's interest in this, in fact, was quite um, critical because there was there were differing um, views within the um, community arts uh, movement, which was um, largely kind of came from um, artists who were kind of on the left, but also those who were um, working. Um, I suppose in non-commercial situations quite often, you know, they were trying to make work with and within communities. Um, so they, you know, they, they had, they, it came from a sort of a left-wing perspective is kind of what I'm saying. Um, but as sort of the need for funding developed, um, there were disputes within community arts as to what was um, the purpose of, of, um, of their work and so on. Um, I think what is important is that there's there's a sort of um, I guess dispute going on as to whether or not some community artists were sort of a white middle class coming into um, in a sort of a paternalistic way to to um, uh, bring culture to working class communities and whether that was um, one one strand of practice and yet there was still a more radical perspective which was that actually probably more along the cultural democracy line of, of, of the discussion of um, how people could participate in shaping their own environments and shaping their own um, their own um, culture themselves you know um, so in a way um, what I'm trying to say is that I suppose um, words like community art and then also ethnic arts they, they weren't adopted lightly at the JLC it was it was particularly um the radical strands of it that was that was kind of encouraged actually um when it came to ethnic arts again that's that's a um a, a, a um a phrase that doesn't sit well with us now <laughs> it doesn't it is an, an uncomfortable sounding phrase um for good reason um it came from, um, I think it was, uh, was it 1976 was the Nassim Khan's report on um, ethnic arts, the art Brit Britain ignores, which was done for the Arts Council. And um, from that report, um, there were a number of um, things that happened, a minority arts um, advisory group performed and so on. But again, when the GLC was looking to um, fund community arts, the idea of having a strand of funding, which was specifically um, earmarked for black arts organizations was a very um, an attractive idea. Um, and again, the, the term wasn't, wasn't taken without critical awareness, I think, um, which is important to, to remember. Um, so yes, it was, it was decided that there'd be two um, Groups. I mean, alongside this as well, there was also a sports committee, which I, I don't write about, but it, it's, the, the information is out there. Um, and I guess um, what's important was that within each of those committees, um, they had a number of advisors who were drawn from radical arts practice practitioners who would then go and um, recommend different groups for funding to the council. 
So um, the community arts group had a number of advisors, and I know you had Lorraine Leeson, who was one of the advisors uh, on your show previously, um, but so did the, um, the Ethnic Arts Subcommittee. They also had advisors um, who were drawn from black cultural producers from, um, from London um, who would recommend groups for, um, for uh, council money. And these would then be presented in council meetings and there would be um, debates as to um, what to fund. So um, that was the, the reasoning at the time. And this was um, a reasonably new departure. So the idea of, of involving so many black cultural um, organizations and practitioners in their funding um, decision-making was, um, was quite a new thing. Um, so that's... <laughs> Yeah, um, and there was indeed a lot of focus on, you know, what the GLC called black art um, and the Ethnic Minorities Committee and unit was set up after the riots in Brixton in 1981, so it's partly mm -hmm. a cultural response to, to that. Um, and of course, wasn't without controversy and fierce opposition mm -hmm. from the right politically. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things the GLC signed off on was a statue of Nelson Mandela um, outside the South Bank Centre, um, designed by um, Ian Waters, um, which attracted quite a lot of opposition at a time when you know Nelson Mandela was still considered a kind of real enemy of the the hard right in this country. Mm -hmm. um, the GLC funded. Um, a song called, well, a recording of a single called Kill the Police Bill by an artist called Ranking Anne, um, which took a very uh, oppositional uh, approach to the <laughs> London the Metropolitan Police um, in a way that proved, yes. <laughs> uh, proved also quite controversial. Um, and... Um, so, so there were lots of criticisms from the right of this particular strand of the GOC's cultural policy, but there are also some criticisms from from the left and from like black writers and thinkers and academics, uh, most notably Paul Gilroy. So, like Hazel, I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about what what Paul Gilroy's criticisms of of this program were. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose what should be um, said as well as it can be just we can kind of distinguish different things going on here because while we talk about an ethnic arts committee that was very much to do with funding of art practices and cultural cultural uh, groups um that was quite specific that sat within um a broader anti-racist sort of uh policy making um that happened at the council unless as you, as you mentioned there was an ethnic minorities unit that also oversaw and looked at all different kinds of policy making that was happening across the council and made comments about uh, and made suggestions regarding um, the um, um, implications for ethnic minority groups for any of these sorts of policies that are being made. There was also um, a, an anti-racist campaign, which um, was uh, done with lots of kind of ad advertising and um, uh, like a big public campaign, which, when we look back on those posters and 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 the the tone of them now, um, they're quite unsettling. And and I think um, Owen, in your in your book, you were kind of recalling that there was a sort of a um, a violence about the way in which they were. Well, firstly, they were sort of directed towards um, making white people almost aware of racism as a problem, mm -hmm. and yet 
this wasn't necessarily um you know the, the tone just just kind of missed as well because there was sort of almost um there was a violence about the way in which they were talking about smashing racism and you know these sorts of things I don't know if you want to come in on this one <laughs> yeah yeah I mean there's a sort of um a slightly SWP tone to them let's say a lot of the time yeah. um and a lot of the, the same sort of people were, were were around it um I suppose sort of ventriloquizing Paul Gilroy's point a bit I suppose that some of it is really about you sort of kick this thing out and where does it then go mm. And I think that's a real kind of interesting point about London geography that's going on there. There's, in the book of interviews that that that, that Tara Curley and the New Left Review did with Ken Livingston in the mid '80s, he kind of has this kind of like, oh, I don't really know. When, where did all the racists go? I suppose they all went to, um, or went to Finchley and Croydon South. And this kind of idea of like we're going to kick out the racists from London, and of course they all go, you know, uh, um, which in sort of real terms, I suppose, resulted in them going to Barking. Um, and you know th th this kind of, um, and it also I think a lot of them now look faintly patronising as well a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but I think sort of seeing them at you know in in their particular context they were they were genuinely I think quite radical. But it's, a lot of it is not things you would do now. Absolutely not. So. <laughs> no, and and Gilroy pointed out that a lot of the anti-racist initiatives, especially the cultural ones, tended to lack active participation of large numbers of black people in London. Um, well, he specifically, mentions, he specifically mentions young black people. Um, and I think that's one of the really interesting things. He kind of mentions one, one of the, his critique of the GLC and, and there ain't a black in the union, Jack. He mentions the hip hop jam that happened at County Hall in 1985, I think. Now, for me, obviously, reading this being like hip-hop jam at County Hall in 1985, the main thing is like just amazement that this ever happened and that it was funded by the state. And so, you know, like, so I tend to kind of look at it and go like, this is literally the level of like putting on like a grime night outside, like, or a drill night outside City Hall in the middle of Moor London next to the Tower of London, next, next to Tower Bridge, you know, like it seems so utopian, but you then kind of go over the details of it and it's not so utopian. Um, he kind of seems to suggest that they accidentally put on a hip-hop night, kind of rather than their kind of usual fare of kind of reggae and folk, which I think is a little bit mean. Um, but one of the things that happened is that far more people came than they expected. Far more people came to that than their usual kind of fare of, you know, of of sort of, you know, Roots Reggae and Billy Bragg, I guess. Um, so, you know, it was absolutely full of, of black youth who turned up to it, like, I think four times more than they expected. Um, and, you know, it got quite rowdy, it got overcrowded, and the police had to be called. And so this attempt to kind of like, you know, the, in a, a way to kind of build, bring kind of black youth into, you know, in, into County Hall ended up with the police turning up. And, and you know, that's exactly what you what they didn't want, exactly what the whole policy was supposed to stop is, you know, is, is, the, is people being policed like that, you know, given to the point they've released the basically explicitly anti-police record on the GLC label. So on that level, it was a really, really big failure. And it kind of, I think that sort of shows in a way where they were and weren't looking. They had this kind of idea of culture and ethnic culture and kind of like multicultural culture that wasn't necessarily that close to what was actually going on on the ground. Partly because a lot of people involved with it were like our age, you know, it was, you know, like, like you know, were, were, were in their late 30s or in their 40s. And, you know, they didn't know what like 18 year old Londoners and Tottenham were listening to. 
And to their surprise, it turned out, it turned out to be hip hop and this caused trouble. Okay. Um, you're listening to Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes. And today I'm talking to Hazel Atashru and Owen Hathley about the cultural policies of the Greater London Council in the early 80s and what relevance they have for us now. Um, so I'd like to move the conversation on a little bit to slightly more in-depth focus on one or two of the GLC's initiatives in the early 80s. Um, you know, some interesting things were going on after the foundation of the Greater London Enterprise Board, which provided some funding for community recording studios and for black publishers and so on. Um, and also, you know, had some awareness of this musical subculture that we've just been talking about to some extent. Uh, indeed, you can see them drawing in some kind of post-punk aesthetics into a lot of their designs. Um, the artist Peter Kennard comes on board and does a lot of photo montages for their advertising. Um, and, you know, certain programs of, of theirs will use quotations from the specials and UB40. And there was this derisive idea of the enemy, the New Musical Express being in power. I'm afraid that's not a derisive idea that anyone said at the time. That's just me. Oh right, okay. Well, um, <laughs> uh, yes, when we that was, talked, that was me looking at jobs for a change and going like, "Oh my god, this just looks like an '80s copy of the enemy." Talk about the enemy within. It suddenly got a very different meaning. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be sweet two one two without one terrible pun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, okay. So let's let's sort of talk a bit more about um, certain kind of initiatives. Um, we've talked a little bit about the influence of something like the Anti-Nazi League um, on the GLC, but also an initiative like Rock Against Racism um, from the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, and this idea of arts policies being a kind of alternative to these kind of more declining forms of political mobilisation and organisation through something like mm -hmm. trade union movements. Um, so the arts were very important. Um, and I think it might be nice to talk specifically about, for sort of 10 minutes or so, about the peace year in 1983, which was um, a kind of response to, uh, in the early 80s, obviously there was again, um, during the Cold War, as what people didn't know at the time was coming into its final decade, uh, heightened and renewed fear of nuclear war. Um, and you can obviously see this in the... Um, the 1985 TV movie Threads uh, and with the Peter Watkins film The War Game finally being shown on British television having been commissioned for the BBC and then banned um, 20 years earlier. Um, there's a heightened interest in in the nuclear issue. Um, so Hazel maybe you'd like to talk about the sort of political background to that. Um, the influence of CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, in the GLC um, and the the program for the peace year. Okay. Um, yes. So, as you say, um, the um, Thatcher government had agreed to um, site nuclear missiles on UK soil, and there was a great fear that um, London or another city could become a target, um, and that the UK would be kind of uh, potentially a sort of a space where a proxy war could could occur. Um, between the superpowers. So um, yes, that's, um, and at the same time the, the, the Protect and Survive pamphlet came out uh, as was revealed um, 
and there was a lot of skepticism about the the, re the realities of um, Londoners' chances, I suppose, um, and the fact that Lon that that um, County Hall was being asked to kind of play along with the ward games and play along with the the um, uh, I suppose the the planning for um, essentially what something that would just kill everyone <laughs> um, was really kind of distasteful. So the only thing that could be done was to was to um, was to I think use it as a as a campaign issue. And they they did a whole um, year's worth of anti nuclear um, um, act activist kind of promotion around London um, they um, declared London to be a nuclear free zone they um, did all kinds of things like opening up nuclear bunkers to show people that there was simply no provision for the public if if some disaster happened but, but as well as that they ran a large um, visual arts kind of campaign bringing in artists to um, I think they actually opened a call and artists came to them um, some of them were muralists, so a group of muralists got together and said we'd like to do some peace murals for London and um, the GLC decided to fund a number of these. One of them is the famous Hackney Peace Carnival mural that everybody knows and loves um, and um, there are several others, some still in situ uh, in London. Um, and also uh, Peter Kennard made a series of posters very much based on his um, um, aesthetic. I mean, he'd been working for the CND, uh, doing design work um, for a long time before then as well, um, and uh, made very hard-hitting posters, I suppose, that got put up all around London, um, and uh, yes, yeah, sort of communicating the idea of the nuclear threat, because actually it's something that's, when you think about it, it's, it's quite a hard thing to to describe, <laughs> to imagine <laughs> the idea of total total destruction. And so I suppose uh, from my perspective, from what I see of this, it was uh, culture actually had a role in kind of communicating that sort of impossible to describe idea of complete destruction that London was potentially facing. And of course, this was 1983 as well. There was a general election coming up. Um, this was an important issue at the time um, as well. There were many other things. There was anti-nuclear theatre. There were, um, I'm just trying to think what other things that I am. Um, I discovered in my research, but an awful lot of different cultural groups were brought in to um, to spread this message. Um, yeah, I mean, documentary film was quite important for them, I think. That's true. Yeah, um, they did sponsor quite a bit of community community video making, um, and again, this is kind of a legacy of um, some of those sort of left wing arts lab type um, arts practices where community workshops were set up to bring um, video equipment and photography equipment to uh, a broader um, reach of people who could then go and document their lives and document things they saw around them. And one of the things, yes, was uh, things like uh, community video um, groups that could make their own uh, documentaries to convey a different kind of a message and to represent themselves as you know, a more diverse group of Londoners rather than perhaps what you saw in the news of women peace activists, for example, which was often quite negative, which was negative. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, and the peace year was kind of widely, um, widely like attended um, and led to various other sort of campaigning 
festivals. So there was London Against yes. Racism in 1984. Um, County Hall held a festival for the miners' strike in July 1984, which gave some idea of the the kind of version of London that they were aiming not just to kind of reflect, but also to sort of secure and bring more into being. Um, so the Minor Strike Festival was attended by punks, Rastafarians, Bangladeshis, and was this kind of performance of democracy, cultural access, um, and was quite popular in polls and local elections. Uh, and the following year, we've already touched on it, um, but in Battersea Park, they held a big festival for a programme called Jobs for a Change, obviously in the context of huge unemployment in the Thatcher era. Um, and this was modelled on the um, Festa della Unita held by the Italian Communist Party. Um, so you really see the kind of influence of the radical left on GLC cultural policy mm -hmm. at this point. So people like Billy Bragg and Ravi Shankar played and there were tents kind of covering mining communities, creativity. Um, and, you know, by this point, it's become very, very clear that the Greater London Council under the Livingston administration and its cultural policies are very, very obviously aiming to explicitly challenge the kind of political and cultural um, basis of, of the Thatcher government. Um, so White Paper is brought in to abolish the GLC in 1983. Um, and indeed, the Local Government Act of 1985 aims to abolish it entirely. So, Owen, could you maybe just tell us a little bit more about um, about just the Act of Parliament to abolish the GLC? Well, I mean, I think probably the more interesting thing is the is the brevity of the White Paper. So, the Tories, who let's not forget, brought in the, the GLC in the first place. The, the consultation that they did for to bring in the GLC is something that ran to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, gigantic documents based on years of consultation. Um, the white paper that they that they abolished the GLC on the basis of was about 20 pages long. Um, they didn't feel that they needed... Um, the sort of thing that people now seem to think is very novel is governments taking the piss to that degree and, and being kind of partisan to that degree, but... This was all pioneered by the Thatcher government. They didn't, you know, they had a whopping great majority. You know, they had, you know, the support of the state. They didn't have to really reckon with much devolution anywhere else. And they could just come in and crush things. And they didn't particularly have to. And, and they no longer felt, I think, like the Tories had in the 60s, that they had to kind of justify it to like the civil service or justify it to, um, to the professions or anything like that. They could just come in and smash stuff. And that's exactly what they did. And, um, you know, it, it, it's pretty much the equivalent in many ways of, of if, if the government now were to decide to abolish the Welsh Assembly or the Scottish Parliament. Um, and obviously it led to kind of widespread resistance, but, you know, none of it, it was never, never, never got violent. And in the 87 election, I found this out to my amazement, there wasn't even a, anything in, in Labour's manifesto to, to, to bring the GLC back, which is incredible, really. Um, and certain aspects of this did kind of outlast the GLC to a certain degree. The, the London Education Authority outlasted it for a few years, for instance. And given that it was even more than the GLC, a kind of a, a preserve of the left was obviously eventually abolished out of existence as well. Um, but you know, it was it was the sort of thing you tend to expect in an authoritarian regime, and uh, you know, and and I don't think people have really reckoned with the fact that that happened. 
and the fact that still, you know, even after the London mayor was brought in to replace it 14 years later, still, you know, London has less local government power than, you know, Milwaukee or Florence. Mm -hmm. And it's important to note here, of course, that that abolition uh, comes just after the government victory in the miners' strike. It comes in the context of, you know, cuts to the BBC and maybe some sort of assault on this idea of cultural democracy more generally that we covered on a previous show. Um, and of Neil Kinnock's factional battles against the Labour left, which, you know, by sort of 1986, 1987, he was winning. Uh, well, I, I mean, on, the, on, the, on those battles, you know, the, 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 the kind of phrase which I think a lot of people still remember of the loony left, this comes above all else from the GLC. Like other councils were involved in kind of nuclear free zones and anti-racism campaigns and so on. But the GLC was by far the most prominent. Um, and the campaigns against that, you know, were, were predicated on... And if you look at the kind of Tory posters and tabloid reports from the time, it's incredibly obvious. We're predicated on the most obvious racism and homophobia and bigotry. Um, and again, people kind of who seem to think this sort of stuff is new need to look at a load of newspapers from 1986 and need to look at Tory posters from 1987. It's, it's just there. Um, and within the Labour Party, I suppose it sort of depends on the time and depends on the faction. Like... In some ways, Kinnock was supportive. Uh, certainly, it wasn't Labour policy to abolish the GLC, and they were officially against it. Um, and I think actually the economics of it, which kind of favoured cooperatives over council housing, which favoured kind of um, workplace democracy over nationalisation and so forth, that one could argue that some of this kind of feeds into some of the ideas that would soon become new Labour. Um, so... There's not this total divide, and a lot of new Labour figures later on are people that are on in that kind of world, um, particularly you know the ones that weren't you know weren't bigots from the start. Um, so the real failure was on on the kind of loony left type stuff as it was as it was perceived. Um, the leadership of the Labour Party totally refused to defend the GLC's anti-racist, anti-homophobic kind of aspect of their of, the, of their program and in many ways they would explicitly ridicule it it was considered a vote loser in the rest of the country the fact that it proved to be a vote winner in london um was kind of irrelevant because these were the stories that tabloids were running with constantly to scare the people in gathering so you know that's that that's that was that was their great worry um it's kind of there's, and again there's a certain amount of revision on re revisionism on this, but for people like Roy Hattersley and, and and Neil Kinnock, you know, the biggest problem with the GLC was precisely the fact that it was anti-racist and anti-homophobic. Yeah, and indeed, you know, the Thatcher government brings in Section Twenty Eight as part of the Local Government Act in nineteen. 86, where it would be Clause 28 before it was passed, um, which of course famously banned the promotion of homosexuality in schools and public bodies. Um, and this was a response partly to things that the GLC had been doing, um, as much as it was to just sort of stamping out LGBT rights and expression more generally. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's interesting to note that the Labour leadership at the time in the mid to late 80s were very reluctant to challenge clause 28 even as there were huge protests in manchester and elsewhere um and even as it was pointed out to them that this was as much an assault on local government as it was on you know a cultural minority 
But it's interesting to chart that transition to new labour, as you say, because, um, you know, it was a key plank of the Labour Manifesto in 1997 to get rid of clause, to get rid of Section 28. Um, and I think it is one of the things for the Blair government's credit that they took on a pretty big battle to get that piece of law abolished. It took six years, I think. Uh, it wasn't abolished till 2003 in the face of huge and very well-funded opposition. Um, so I think that's um, that's interesting to think about as well. Um, and of course, you know, one of one of the things that leads to like a sh- slow sea change away from the Conservatives nationally, and of course brings down Thatcher, is the um, the riots in response to the introduction of the poll tax, this flat rate tax that partly aimed to induce some hostility to local government and to tie their hands. Um, so I think that's that's quite interesting as well. Um, but I mean, because there's so much levels there. On the one the one hand, there is the level of just the, the, the outright bigotry of it. And I know that one of Thatcher's biographers have recently kind of tried to kind of go, oh, well, it was just in order to crush local government. So it's not homophobic as it looks, as if this makes any sense whatsoever. Um, and it was the kind, of, the kind of meshing of those things. And I, I really don't think it can be gainsaid how obsessed they were with crushing local government. That, you know, that this kind of like creation of this absolutely monolithic state was an obsession for them and it eventually brought her down. Yeah, absolutely. And so seven years after the um, the poll tax riots, of course, Labour come to power with a huge majority and part of their manifesto, they are committed to introducing a new London body. And this is confirmed by a referendum in 1988. Um, Tony Banks becomes uh, Minister for Sport in 1997. Um, and the Greater London Assembly is created and it has a directly elected London mayor on this all quite American model and a London Assembly. Um, and an interesting uh, turn of fate, uh, Ken Livingston tries and fails to get the Labour nomination for the first mayoral election in 2000. Um, so he stands as an independent, wins on an overwhelming majority and uh as his first speech, he says, as I was saying, for I was rudely interrupted 14 years ago uh, and begins two terms as as London mayor, like one as an independent and then one, one under the Labour Party banner. Um, so since then, I mean, we won't go over all the history of it because we're, we're running out of time. We've got about 10 minutes left. But since then, of course, you've had two terms of Ken Livingstone as mayor, um, two terms of Boris Johnson, um, and then the current incumbent is, of course, Steve Khan, who um, was standing for the Labour Party, um, won fairly convincingly in 2016, and was really very strongly expected to win again this year before the um, COVID-19 pandemic um, postponed the mayoral elections until May of next year, when I expect they probably probably will be held. I think if the Americans can hold a nationwide election, we can probably have a London one. Um, so, you know, in the context of um, some of the people we've mentioned uh, earlier in the show, um, John McDonnell and Diane Abbott, of course, were involved with the Greater London Council, and along with Jeremy Corbyn, who was um, a councillor and then a Labour MP, um, in Islington um, from 1983 onwards, uh, were all involved with the GLC, all carried something of the GLC's arts and cultural policies into 
their Labour Party project, I think. I mean, you can definitely see the influence of the Greater London Council in Jeremy Corbyn's cultural policies, um, both for the 19... 19- both for the 2015 leadership election and for the 2017 and 2019 um, general elections. And you can see not just a commitment to much greater arts funding, but also um, allowing um, regional authority, firstly, distributing funding more equitably on a regional basis and allowing more autonomy in how that funding would have been spent. Um, But also on a more kind of socio-cultural level really believing in the creative abilities and potentials of every citizen and particularly every child um so the arts policies were closely linked to education and housing policies um and you know i recently interviewed jeremy corbyn for a online only version of this program so listeners who want more on that can can go and listen to that through our um through our soundcloud suite dash 212 um but i think it's interesting to think at this point with the kind of crushing of the labor left in the december 2019 general election um and the change of direction that the labor party already seems to be taking um under its national leadership uh but the fact that as was seen in um in the election results in 2017 and 2019 uh the fact that the manifestos were very popular in London and Labour overwhelmingly won a lot of seats in London. Uh, whether whether there's anything to be taken from the Greater London Council's arts and cultural policies, um, how they're kind of relevant to us now, um, and what might feed into a programme of government for London in the 2020s? So... Do you want me to go first? Okay. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, looking looking at it from this distance, quite a lot of GLC um, arts ideas did just, you know, ended up in New Labour in one way or another. And, you know, Tony Banks being the being the kind of continuity there, um, you know, sort of a break with the kind of bigotry and small-mindedness of Thatcherism, an embrace of kind of pop music and the so-called cultural industries, an embrace of football, an embrace of modernist architecture. This all kind of happened in the last Labour governments. Um, and it coincided with something that was also, I think, nascent in the GLC, of this kind of idea of accessibility as all. Um, and you can see that in a lot of their kind of confrontation of the Hayward Gallery, in which neither really comes out very well. Um the Hayward Gallery, I believe, um, had, threw a big party when the GLC fell, and it fell, and it was back under the control of the Arts Council. Um, so the um, and that aspect, you know, sometimes it could kind of fall into a kind of like if people don't understand it, it's not good. Um, and I, I'm I'm not quite I'm not so sure what I if I if I'm really down with that. The aspects of the GLC's cultural policy that I really think is exciting and interesting is its use of space. So in that, the festivals, whether in parks or on the South Bank and so on, um, the kind of carnivals and so on, the fact that they kind of used the streets of London and the parks of London as celebratory spaces, as kind of convivial spaces, I think is is very um it's very uh, exciting and a thing that we really lack at the moment 
and a thing that I think you could feel the kind of lack of in lockdown that there are all these kind of parks that you were kind of that could so easily have had sort of things like that 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 that, that, that didn't um and also the way they used their public buildings so you know in the kind of new labor era there was very much this idea that if a building was transparent then therefore it was nice and public you know that the norman foster city hall which is rented from a developer and which the gla are actually currently uh, vacating because they can no longer afford it even though it was purpose built um, was based on this idea that because it was glass it was democratic whereas what they did with county hall and what they did with the royal festival hall both of which were which was uh, controlled by the GLC, um, is they just opened it up to the public at all times. And with the Royal Festival Hall, this has continued. I mean, you know, they've put uh, some wagamamas on the ground floor and so, so forth. But that idea that anyone can use it at any time, that has continued. And you can see that the management of it absolutely hate that and would rather, you know, turn it over into a sort of wanky sort of office complex, like something between like WeWork and Peckham levels. But like, you know, it, this is what it remains, even though it doesn't remain it right now because obviously we're in lockdown. But, you know, up until March, the Royal Festival Hall remained what the GLC of the 80s made it, which is the thing that you could walk into at any time and no one's going to ask you to buy anything. And that there will be kind of, you know, events and so forth that will happen in there that will be free. Um, and County Hall, similarly, you know, obviously County Hall was built as this kind of Edwardian Baroque palace for the government of London, but they turned it over to something like the Colour Culture Husa in Stockholm, which was one of their kind of, along with um, the PCI in Italy, was one of their kind of big influences as a thing that would have, you know, like a music festival happening in the same building as London's government presiding at the same time, and that you could walk into it off the street at any time. And in a city where space is so privatized, where buildings are so privatized, where there's so many places where you can and can't go, where there's so many gates, that I think is the most revolutionary aspect of it and the one that we can learn most from. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole other aspect of this to this question of space as well, which is also the fact that space is a huge problem for arts organizations um, at the moment and increasingly will be um, post-pandemic, you know, um, as you say, there's so much space that's private and so much space that's just uh, inaccessible. Um, one of the things that maybe um, some people I've spoken to think the GLC should have done more of was actually possibly, um, you know, purchasing space more, enabling more organisations to purchase space, because, of course, the way property value has increased over time, um, this would have really set many many organisations up, and a few did manage to um, to enter into that. There were certain studio complexes that managed to um, to, to to do um, that and have built a built a kind of more strong base for the future on on those purchases. But um, yeah, um, that's I think I think it's a really interesting idea. I mean, it's 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 difficult in this day and age to think that people could have free access to buildings. I mean, but it does work in the South Bank, it does work. Um, and I think to me as well, I think it's interesting um, to look back at sort of the possibilities of, of culture as, as a kind of a way of communicating um, as well uh, and involving more, more than just a sort of a publicity department to create um, communications, I suppose, um, in that way. But of course, it can fall flat, as we have seen. It's not always a, a solid um, basis. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, diff it's difficult to think what will happen because we've entered into such a lean period, really, uh, in the last number of years in terms of arts funding. Um, and 
bring out the pandemic and Brexit, um, how 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 culture will be prioritised or, or not? I think in this in this coming context, I, I I don't know. I find it hard to see unless taxes are raised considerably and somebody fights for it. I don't I don't see how how it's going to be considered a priority. But <laughs> negative points, perhaps. <laughs> But I just want to come in on that point on, on taxation, because what's interesting about the GLC is that it had loads of money. Yes. Um, because of the fact that it, that it, it, it could, you know, it charged quite considerable rates and, and business rates and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when the kind of confrontation happened between um, the, G, you know, between the kind of councils and Thatcher over rate capping, um, the GLC ended up, you know, not, you know, ended up setting a legal rate, leading to, you know, a conflict between McDonnell and Livingston. And one of the reasons why they didn't is because they were just flush. Yes. Because, you know, London is full of money. Um, And they were able to tax that money and redistribute it. And that's exactly what um, the GLA has not been able to do. And that's been its great failure in the 20 years that's been around, is that it has opposite, literally opposite, you know, just like, absolutely tons of kind of liquid capital just sloshing around the place which it cannot get its hands on and that's why it's currently moving to a shed in the royal docks right well that's that's not an optimistic place to <laughs> end on sadly but i mean, but, um, it, but, I mean it's, it yeah. suggests at least that the, you know that you can make these things work if you are able to you know to to raise the revenue to them if you are able to to you know drag the rich and tax them until the pipsqueak <laughs> well um i think that's that's a nice note to uh to close on um owen hazel thank you so much for joining me today thank you thank you um i've been your host juliet jakes uh here on suite 212 on resonance 104.4 fm uh you can find us on twitter at suite underscore 212 find us on facebook find us at soundcloud.com slash suite dash 212 and i will be back with another show, same time, same place next month. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.